Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 16th, 2018, and this is show number 710. Well, this week's show is plenty long, but I didn't actually do much in terms of blog posts. We have a lot of Bart and me to entertain you instead. Everything's better with Bart, am I right? Well, speaking of Bart, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was installment 68 of Programming by Stealth. In this week's show, Bart shows us how to use Bootstrap to create and style navigation using the Nav class. Navigation can be in menus on a web page or navigation around a web app and other places. There's a part in there where we get into ta- uh, tabs and panes where I suspect Jill or Helma will jump in to help me get it straight because I got a little bit confused. It takes a village to help me out sometimes. I do know that Dorothy will enjoy the episode in particular because there's several times where I have to begrudgingly admit that she was right. You can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond or Programming by Stealth. And of course, you can find it at podfeet.com with a link over to Bart's fabulous written tutorial. This week, I had the pleasure of being on the Daily Tech News Show with Tom Merritt, Sarah Lane, and Roger Chang. I had a blast as we talked about how Facebook yet again revealed a flaw that allowed people's photos uh, to be exposed without their knowledge. We talked about the latest in the battle between Qualcomm and Apple and how I was right that VR is dumb. We talked about the latest spear phishing scam that you're going to hear Bart and and me talk about later in the show on Security Bits. The main topic was all about how I set up Apple TVs around my house using AirPlay 2, the whole story that you heard last week. If you want to check out that latest episode of Daily Tech News Show, it is at uh, DTNS 3429. It is entitled AirPlay 2 Remodel Boogaloo. Well, next Sunday is when we will be celebrating Christmas with our kids. We do it on Christmas Eve uh, every year. So there's not going to be a live show next week. I I asked the chat room, did they want me to do it on on actual Christmas Eve? Because I think that's Christmas Eve Eve, really, on Sunday. I'm getting all confused. But anyway, nobody wants to listen to the No Silicast Live on Christmas Eve. So there will not be a live show next week. I'm not sure what day the show is going to come out because, of course, there will be a No Silicast because we never miss a show. So I'm not really sure. It might come out on Monday, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Stay tuned. Well, I've asked Bart to come on here to talk to us about something, a couple of fun things here. Um, as you know, after the PBS episodes, I always say, if you enjoy Bart's work as much as I do, why don't you consider going over to lets-talk.ie and hitting those uh, those bright, I think they're blue buttons, is that right? Pretty Pretty blue, yeah. Pretty blue buttons. There's one for PayPal and the better one for Patreon. And it looks like between that and some work you've been doing for uh, for a client, you've been able to afford a new toy. I have, yes. So I, I do a little bit of consulting work with my Bartificer Creations hat on. And I had a few invoices come in together at the end of the year, which is very nice when they do that at the end of the year. That's that's a nice time to, to come together. Um, so I have been stressing about the fact that my Ma- my main Mac, my only Mac, has been three years out of Apple Care. Or- oh, oh, really? <laughs> three yeah. years? Yikes. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it was a lovely 27-inch iMac, and it served me really well for its five and a bit years of life. But I did sort of have this feeling that any morning I could wake up, and when I jiggled the mouse, nothing would happen. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was my perpetual fear. Um, so I had a few invoices come at the same time. Uh, so I um, went to apple.com and acquired an identical-looking 
iMac, but quite different on the inside. <laughs> so It's uh, amazing, because I, I haven't taken all my stuff off the old one, so they're actually both on my desk, which looks ridiculous. <laughs> but they are they are identical. Like, the casing didn't change between the late or mid-2013 or whatever my old one was and the current... Um, mid-2017, which is actually the current model, which is an important point I'll get to in a moment. Uh, yeah, so you had, a, you had a 2013, so it's the real, it was already the real thin one back then. It was the very, very first real thin one. It was literally, oh. I I bought that iMac just when they did their big change. I sort of went, let's let's make this one last. So was that a, a, a 4K or 5K display or anything? No, it was before they were, it's, so it's literally the first thin one, so it's a regular old non-retina plain old oh. display. Oh, okay. So, oh, quite the change. I I don't know how my eyeballs didn't fall out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so now the way you acquired this was interesting too, right? So I was looking at. So I went to Apple dot com and I spec'd up. Uh, my sort of approach is always spec up the ideal machine and don't look at the price until you're finished, okay. and then start compromising. <laughs> well, actually, technically, there was a previous step. You told me you were going to max out the RAM on your old Mac. I was. So I went to OWC, which is the great. I love those guys. And it would have cost me $105 plus uh, postage plus VAT, which I think would have worked out about 130 euro or something, which actually wasn't bad to get it up to 16 gigs of RAM. Wow. Okay. That would have been quite nice. Yeah. So I started this one at 16 gigs. Um, and I started this one. By the way, my, the- my opinion was that was good good money after bad, but I didn't want to tell you. I didn't want to say that. But it was like, oh... Oh, I didn't realize at the time there would be a new iMac quite so near in my future. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm now in the bizarre position where OWC have told me that when the package arrives, because it hasn't arrived yet, because I took a cheap shipping option, that I should reject it and let it return to sender and then they'll refund me. Oh, and that way I don't so have to pay the tax. Good. Because if I accept the package, they're great. I love them to bits. If I accept yeah. the package, I have to pay the VAT and stuff on it. If I reject the package, it goes back to them without any tax being paid in Ireland. <laughs> Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, so we're sort of waiting for the courier to come, and I'm waiting on two packages, one I want and one I want to return, so I need to be very, very careful (laughs) that my new cycling jacket doesn't get sent back and that the RAM does get sent back. Okay, so you go in and you're specking out your dream machine. Yeah, and so it comes to, when I spec it all out and I throw in Apple Care, it comes to 3,000 euro, 2,900 and a little bit, so it's 3,000 euro. And then... It occurred to me, it's like, okay, well, hang on, what is the current model of iMac? And I went and looked on good old Mac Tracker, love that app, mm-hmm. and it said June 2017. So that, that is the model identifier of the current iMac is June 2017. So oh. then I went, well, what would the refurb store have? And so I started clicking through all the 27-inch iMacs, and some of them were, you know, late 2015 or whatever. And lo and behold, I found one that was June 2017, 16 so gigs of model. RAM. The current model, 16 gigs of RAM, because you don't get to customize the refurbs, they are what they are. It had 16 gigs of RAM and a three terabyte hard drive. Now, the the biggest hard drive they'll sell me today is two. So my dream machine had a two terabyte fusion drive and the refurb one had a three terabyte fusion drive. And the refurb, so the refurb is the same, the same i5 CPU, the same same screen, etc. everything else, because it's the same model of iMac, the same 16 gigs of RAM and a three terabyte drive instead of a two terabyte drive. And it was four hundred euro cheaper. Oh wow! So because Apple are so slow at refreshing their models, I saved four hundred euro, gained a terabyte of space, and have the identically same machine. It is oh, the current fantastic. iMac. Oh, fantastic! Yes, 
and I am very happy with it. We are fast becoming very good friends. Um, a little bit <laughs> of work to screen? do. Oh my! I've had Retina screens on my phones and on my tablets and even on my 12-inch MacBook from work. Mm-hmm. But a 12-inch MacBook and a 27-inch iMac, yeah, they're both Retina, <laughs> but do you know something? It's not the same. That I didn't realize how much better it would be. It's nice. astonishing. Like everything looks beautiful. Every rounded corner in Audio Hijack is just pure perfection. <laughs> it's wonderful. All the little shades of of uh, uh, dark mode. Yeah, no, it's oh, I must actually try dark mode. I haven't done that yet. But no, it's just yeah, it just looks gorgeous. And of course, we have USB C and all the new shiny goodness as well. So this is a pretty darn future proof Mac. So the, well, yeah, you know, that's if I the get thing with. With the Thunderbolt on those, Thunderbolt 3, more importantly than USB-C, mm. you can, uh, later on when SSDs get even cheaper, you could have a bootable SSD, right? And it would be yeah. as fast as what you have inside. Or certainly as fast as a spinning disk inside, yeah. Well, no, it'll be faster. I mean, if it's an SSD. Yeah, an external yeah SSD but what I'm saying is that the, yeah. there might be a little bit more latency because it's not quite as close to it on the, you know, on the, on the motherboard. But whatever little bit more latency, but the slightly longer cable is going to be completely eclipsed by the SSD ness of it all. Right, right. right. So, so that's a that's a five K display. That's not a four K display. That's a five K yes. display. Yes, it is. Which means that actually, and I've not been doing much video recently, and the main reason is because editing video on a five year old iMac was not a pleasant experience. Right. I think editing video on this will be a very pleasant experience. Although I have a fear, hmm. I may want a new camera. Oh, no. Because <laughs> if this screen is this good, what happens if I put my video on it and it doesn't look this good? No, all you need to do is use your iPhone as your video camera, Bart. Well, yeah, it's good for many things, but it's, Can, not, you, it's not an SLR with a nice zoom lens on it. <laughs> it just doesn't have the zoom, but it's got, uh, it's got the resolution that you want. It's uh, that is true. a pretty amazing camera. I mean, people shoot oh, full-length feature films on them now, right? So I I, I I can't even tell sometimes when I'm looking through my library, my photo library, I have to go into the EXIF data to tell what's come from my SLR and what's come from my iPhone. Oh yeah, Alex Lindsay keeps talking on uh, MacBreak Weekly about how he put he prints out his photos and he puts hmm. giant prints on his walls, and he says two thirds of them are from his iPhone, and and he only knows that because he he was the one who put them together. But he said otherwise, yeah. I can't tell. And Alex Lindsay is as annoying and high endness as they come, so. Yeah, he'll pixel peep with the best of them, and if he can't tell, we're golden. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. So is this now your uh, full-time podcasting machine instead of your 12-inch MacBook from work? Yes, it is. It's great to be able to podcast on a machine actually that's mine, mine, and not, you know, because work have a, what we, so you're, you're familiar with the buzzword BYOD, right? Right. Bring, Bring your own, own device. device. Well, there's a, that became unbuzzwordy, and there's a new buzzword, which is the inverse of BYOD, which is called COPE. Corporately owned, personally enabled. Wow. Yeah, that's something my company didn't believe in. Yeah, so we are a COPE institution, but it's not the same. Right. Because the device is still enrolled in the the corporate, you know, Intune and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you are on borrow, you know, it's it's not the same. It's just not the same. So it's really nice to be back entirely independent on my own stuff for podcasting and fun hobbies. It's huge and powerful in that display and to be able to have lots of stuff up on screen at the same time and uh, and to walk around going, I saved 400 euro. (laughs) Yeah, so that that is the real model, right? I have always been a fan of the refurb store. 
But if you're getting a machine that hasn't been refreshed in a while, you may actually have no, you may have nothing to lose by going refurb. You're not taking last year's model at a discount. You're taking this year's model at a discount. And that's right. wow. Right, right. Uh, I was, uh, I bought the 27 inch cinema display for myself at full price. And when I decided to get one for Steve, I just said, well, why should I pay full price if I can find it on refurb? And I found it, it was a thousand dollars. I got it for eight, 800 bucks. And I mean, it's, you know, as good as new. I mean, it is. Yeah, and they're certified, right? And they come, they yeah. come, they come in a box. The only thing is, your box is less shiny, right? It's a plain white a box. Less shiny, yeah, yeah. And the keyboard, the box with the keyboard and mouse in it says "Certified Apple Refurb" instead of "iMac" or whatever it normally says. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, but, really, there is there is no downside here because they and like there's full Apple Care on it. The whole works. It's it's a, and a lot of it's them the same. Where, a lot of them are where someone got it, opened it up, put it up on the desk, and went, "Nah, I don't think I need this." And get it back, right? Yeah. yeah. It could be in that first 14-day window or 15-day window, whatever it is. So, Yeah. Um, in fact, the Apple's returns policy during the holiday seasons is quite generous. So they could even be returned gifts. Right. Right. Well, this I guess is that's fantastic. More for January. I'm, so, anyway. I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad you got that. Uh, got this. This is great news. I think if anybody deserves a new Mac, it's you. Oh, thank you. It's. I'm enjoying it so very much. Anyway, until... Next time we speak in some way, wibbly, wobbly, timey, wimey thing, talk to you soon. Happy computing. Yeah, that's definitely happy computing for you. Yes. Well, I thought that was a lot of fun. And I do have to point out that, yes, Jill, I know that that uh, wibbly, wobbly, timey, wimey, whatever you just said, that's a Doctor Who reference. I did not realize that until Jill told me about it. Last week, Amazon announced that Apple Music was coming to the Amazon Echo on the 17th of December. In a surprise move, they came out with it on the 14th, three entire days early. Now, you know I don't listen to music, but I pay for a family plan on Apple Music so my entire family can use it. They don't use it, though. But for some reason, I keep paying for it. Both Lindsay and Kyle are in the Amazon Echo Amazon Echo ecosystem, so I thought maybe this would make them actually use Apple Music if it was enabled on their Amazon Echoes. I decided I needed to figure out how to set up Apple Music on the Echo, and while I was at it, why not create a tutorial with screenshots and annotations with my beloved yet geriatric Clarify? The steps to do this are pretty simple, but I thought I'd walk you through them anyway. In the A-Lady app on the home screen on your iOS device, there's a misshapen hamburger menu in the upper left. Not sure why, but the third line of the hamburger is shorter than the other two. Anyway, if you tap on the misshapen hamburger icon, you'll see a menu slide in from the left. On that menu, one of the choices is Things to Try. Under Things to Try, you'll see Amazon Music. On the Amazon Music screen, one very prominent option is Select Music Service. I thought it was interesting that it's not buried in the small print somewhere. It's right up there at the top. The next page allows you to manage your existing services, which in my case showed iHeartRadio and TuneIn and Spotify, along with Amazon Music. I have no idea why those other things are in there. Anyway, above all of those uh, items in that list, it says Link New Service. Again, quite prominently shown among services such as SiriusXM and Pandora, you have the option to link a new service called Apple Music. Select Enable to Use on the next screen and then authenticate with your Apple ID to give Echo access to your Apple Music subscription. For some reason, you have to select Allow yet again and then hit Done. Surprisingly, it then surfaces the option to choose a default music service. I say surprisingly because... 
It seemed to me that even though they know you want Apple Music, they'd add a little bit of sand in the gears so you'd have to hunt to move away from using Amazon Music as the default. However, on this screen, you can choose Not Now or Visit Music Settings to go right in and change it. At this point, you'll have the option to change your default music library to Apple Music. There's a second section I don't entirely understand called Default Station. You can change your default station away from Amazon Music to Apple Music. Again, I'm not sure what a station is. It's sort of like a playlist, but they have playlists too. And I thought maybe stations are pre-created playlists, but no, there's pre-created playlists and pre-created stations both on, on Amazon. I do not understand. So I went hunting and I found a page on Amazon that supposedly explains the difference between playlists and stations. And there's a link in the show notes, so maybe you can figure it out. But after reading it, it was I was no more able to explain to you the differences. I pinged my friend Diane, who's really into the Amazon Echo. I even pinged uh, Joe uh, Duganzik of Smarter Home Life, who knows everything about this stuff, and he didn't know the difference. The they're both uh, curated. Um, the only thing Diane could think of was playlists have an end to them, like there's only so much stuff in a playlist, and a station kind of goes on indefinitely. And I said, well, it seems like since it's it's uh, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, not pre-created, but um, curated. Since it's curated, it must have an end, but you're just unlikely to get to the end of it. But in any case, you can send both of them to be uh, defaulted to Apple instead of Amazon. So the cool thing is you can play Apple Music on your Amazon Echo devices now, since a Amazon is putting A-Lady in everything now. In fact, I'm pretty sure one of the fillings I just had put in on my teeth has A-Lady built into it. So having A-Lady be able to play Apple Music is a great thing. Every week or two, I send out a plea to you to consider buying things via the Amazon affiliate links to products I recommend on podfeed.com. I have to say that you guys went bananas in the last month, especially over Thanksgiving weekend. You guys collectively sent Amazon $8,297.52 through my Amazon affiliate links. Now that's some serious dedication. When you do buy through my Amazon affiliate links, a small percentage, which varies all over the map, by the way, uh, that may come back as fees that help pay for the expenses of creating the Podfeet podcast. I think every one of you who have read the articles, found the links, and then done your shopping through those links on Amazon. It truly makes a huge difference to me. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. I'm uh, glad to have you here, Bart. What's up? Nothing much going on, did you say? Oh, my goodness me. Is it been... Uh, I've spent twice as much time on this week's show notes as normal, and I don't feel I'm particularly well read up on, on, on all of it, to be honest. It, <laughs> wow. It's been busy. All right. So no faffing about. We should just jump right in. What's happening? What is happening? Um, okay. Well... So let me see, where do we start? Some follow-up first. Our good old friend, the uh, Big Hack story from Bloomberg has had some developments since last we spoke. Um, Supermicro didn't really like being accused of being used to spy on major US corporations, so they engaged... Wait, not uh, being outside. used, being accused of using. Well, no, being accused of being used. So the, yeah, the accusation that the Chinese That's government right. infiltrated them. Right. Um, so they, they engaged a third party outside auditor to come in and audit them. 
And that auditor has now reported and uh, they do not, they basically say that um, they found nothing, no software, no hardware, no nothing. Yeah, now, they, they looked at old ones and new old boards, new boards, everything. They couldn't find anything. Correct. But of course, they didn't look at every single board ever made by Trend Micro. So it is impossible to prove that no motherboard ever had this. But it is certainly, it, if this happened at all, it is not widespread. It is not happening right now. But of course, you can never prove that there never was a pink teapot orbiting Saturn. So <laughs> it seems you know. so weird that that they don't that Bloomberg doesn't have to come forward and and prove why they think they know what they know. You know, I know. I mean, I, I was I was in a debate with Tom Merritt about uh, whether or not it's uh, liable, and it is it is liable if it can be proven to be false. Oh God! <laughs> right. So we're in an awful circle here. Right, right. Well, I, oh, I, I personally never believed the story, but I'm no. I mean, we talked about it in great detail at the time, and we both independently came to the same conclusion while doing our homework that we didn't believe it, um, and I still don't believe it. And the fact that we now know that there are other newspapers trying to recreate the story, and they're failing to recreate it. Bloomberg are, have failed to substantiate it in any way, shape, or form. So it's, yeah, it, it just continues to not stack up. Yeah. And, I, you know, part of it is that I want to believe in Apple was why. But but another part of it is which was the least improbable story, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is actually how we analyzed it, if I remember rightly, back in that episode. We actually sort of, you know, someone someone who is usually trustworthy is wrong here. Which of them is it most likely to be? And we both came to the same conclusion. Right. Uh, the other follow-up then is the Marriott breach we talked about last week. Um, so the, the the big piece of new facts we have since last week is that um, the New York Times did some digging and they have tied it back to the Chinese government as being the attackers who were in for four years. Now, in a perverse way, that's good news. <laughs> really? Well, yes, because it means it's not cyber criminals who are interested in credit card fraud. Okay. State actor who's trying to spy on people and figure out who's meeting who. Uh, I mean, if I was a Chinese dissident meeting in hotels, I would be really, really worried because knowing when a whole bunch of suspects get together in the same place and time could really help the Chinese government figure out who's plotting and stuff. So it, it's kind of really dangerous information, especially with those passport numbers being in the leaked information. But from a cybercrime point of view, for people who have no contact with China, this is better than cyber criminals because at least they're, the Chinese government don't care about you unless you care about them. <laughs> Great. Didn't that uh, article also say that the same hack appears to be going on in other places, that it wasn't just Marriott, Starwood at the time? Yeah, which, I mean, that doesn't surprise me because... If you're interested in figuring out who's staying where, why would you only care about one brand of hotel? Uh, right, right, right. That wouldn't be in the list, yeah. Yeah, so the the instruction to have gone to the to to the hacking division of the Chinese government would have been to figure out who's staying in what hotels. And they may or may not have succeeded everywhere they tried, but they would certainly have tried more than one. Right, right. Uh, and then also linked in the show notes is an interesting opinion piece by Brian Krebs, who basically says, OK, well, let's take this as a teachable moment. If you're running some sort of system that contains some sort of data, what should you take away from this? And 
if you're a user of systems that contain data, what should you take away from this? And in both cases, it really comes down to live your life on the assumption that your data is hacked. If you're a corporation, you should not. The old model where you had a firewall and you could assume that everything behind the firewall was fine and that all the evil was outside the firewall. That concept belongs in the 1980s. Leave it there. That is not how you should be designing your defenses. And as a user, you should input your information into as few places as possible because the chances are wherever you put it in, it's going to get lost. And you should defend yourself as best you can. Well, even if you never put it out there, you should assume it's going to get lost. The Office of Personal Management data was in in paper form when we submitted it. That is true. You didn't digitize it, but it was nonetheless digitized. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. It's not cheerful, but it, to be honest, it's actually a, kind of a, a strangely cathartic way to look at things. If you if you look at the world that way, you can actually do a lot to minimize the damage, but you have to start by assuming failure, and then you can actually be productive. Whereas if you... Mm, I don't know. My, my perspective okay. is I am 100% failed, and I will be for the rest of my life, so all of these articles are just so what to me. <laughs> right, but they tell you how you should do things, so they tell you that you should lock your credit. Yeah. So you should do yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. So basically, if you live your life on the assumption that that your data is indeed owned, well, then you adjust what you can to make sure. So, so you basically defend yourself on the assumption that it is hacked, right? right. And then your defense is actually valuable. And if you turn out, if your assumption turns out to be wrong, hey, no harm, <laughs> right? But if you live your life on the assumption that your data is safe and you're wrong, oops. <laughs> right. Right. I got gotcha. you. Okay. So we have two security mediums to get to. Um, the first one was planned, and the second one sort of arrived in my RSS feed last minute. Um, so Australia have been busy in their parliament passing controversial laws, or specifically the Assistance and Access Act. Um, ooh, could you fix a typo in the show notes? There's only one act in Assistance and Access Act. It's not the Act <laughs> okay. Act. Um. So this has now passed the lower house of parliament is expected to sail through the rest of the formalities and to become law early next year. So the bill is designed to allow the government to issue three different orders or two different types of order towards their uh, the tech companies operating in Australia. Um, so the, the sort of they escalate. So the lowest level they can ask for is what's called a technical assistance request which is a notice to provide voluntary assistance to law enforcement for safeguarding of national security and the enforcement of the law. So basically, if you could imagine that you're Apple and you have, because of how things work, you have people's emails because that can't be encrypted as it arrives. Well, then it's reasonable to say, you know, there's this terrible thing going on. Here's here's a warrant from a judge. Can you give us those emails that you have sitting there unencrypted, please? And that's okay. kind of what Apple would do anyway, right? I mean, Apple responds to subpoenas and stuff anyway. So that's sort of, there's not really that much there there. Um, a technical assistance notice then is a little bit stronger. Um, it requires companies to offer decryption. They are already capable of providing that is reasonable, proportionate, practicable, and technically feasible. So where the company already has a way of decrypting the data, maybe because it isn't end-to-end encrypted, or maybe because there are points where the data is at rest in an unencrypted form, or where the company have the keys to do the decryption. Basically, where the company can, without changing anything, do the decryption, they can be ordered to do it under this technical assistance notice. 
Okay. So a request is, is, is yes, yeah, so a notice is like, here's an order, do this. And then the final one is the scary one. It's the one that's getting all the media attention. This is a technical capability notice. A notice issued by the Attorney General. So that means it's, right, you, these aren't going to be handed out like sweeties, which is at least something. <laughs> um, but anyway, so a notice issued by the Attorney General requiring tech companies to build a new capability to decrypt communications for law enforcement. The bill stipulates this can't include capabilities that remove electronic protection, such as encryption. Wait. So, yeah, I know, right? There's your digital unicorn that just marched into this conversation. Well, they're going to use AI to fix that, right? <laughs> that must be it, or machine learning of some sort. So the law says that you can't be forced to add a systematic weakness or a systematic vulnerability, and that you can be compelled to build new capabilities to decrypt communications. Well, I cannot square that circle. And I'm not the only one who can't square that circle. Wait, new math. <laughs> right. So cryptogra cryptography experts' heads all exploded across the planet simultaneously. Um, and Apple, who have been very vocal in the whole... I mean, Apple were trying to be involved while this law was being drafted, trying to guide the law so that it wouldn't have unicorns in it. And they weren't really... They weren't taken seriously enough anyway. Um, so Apple's response bears quoting... Some suggest that exceptions can be made and access to encrypted data could be created just for only those sworn to uphold the public good. This is a false premise. Encryption is simply math. Any process that weakens the mathematical models that protect user data for anyone will, by extension, weaken the protections for everyone. It would be wrong to weaken security for millions of law-abiding customers in order to investigate the very few who pose a threat. Uh, the law was also a little bit rushed, so a lot of criticism has come in the form of there being amendments which were never given a proper hearing, um, and obvious weaknesses pointed out, and basically yada yada passed with sort of the <laughs> promise of yeah yeah we'll we'll fix it later with some amendments, which is not a good way to write a law. I think the biggest example of this is the fact that um, the definition of what it means to introduce systematic weaknesses or systematic vulnerabilities those are missing. And they have been promised for, quote, unquote, a future amendment. Because <laughs> it's hard and we just haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, we haven't defined our unicorn. We'll, we'll deliver it later. Oh. So ultimately, this kind of comes down to what happens the first time this bill ends up in court, uh, where a judge is going to have to just basically figure this kind of stuff out. And if the judge decides to take this ambiguity and stretch it towards, you know, whichever the broadest they, possible whichever interpretation. Whichever understand. I, yeah, I know. This is lots of ifs and yeah. So they could interpret it as, well, you know, anything is a systematic weakness. Therefore, this law can't force you to do anything. Or they could interpret it the other way and that nothing is a systematic weakness. And then this law is a complete disaster. So we kind of don't know what it means yet. And then the final little vital data point is that Australia is a member of something called the Five Eyes, which is a group of five large English-speaking nations who all share intelligence information with each other. They would be Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. So really, this kind of affects all of us. All right. Well, time will tell. We'll see how this unicorn rolls out. Yeah. I mean, really, the, the Australian courts are the biggest thing to... Like, what? How? <laughs> I don't want to be that judge. Here you go. Here's a, here's a law that contradicts itself. Have fun, Your Honor. <laughs> Great. 
Security Medium 2, then, is a story that's really lit the world on fire because it involves bypassing two-factor authentication. And that is rightly a hot topic. I, I think it's good that this gets people excited. The good news is there's nothing here to set your hair on fire about because Alison's first rule of computers saves today. <laughs> so what's Alison's first rule of computers? Don't click on links. If you don't click on links in email, then no matter how sophisticated this attack is, you are safe from it because this attack entirely rests on tricking people into clicking on links in email. That is that is where the chain can be trivially broken. But nonetheless, so what's happened here is that security researchers have revealed a new technique that the Iranian government has been deploying against U.S. officials. So again, that's another reason why it's making a lot of news, right? The Iranian government attacking U.S. officials. Yep. Uh, it's basically spear phishing. And what they have done is they haven't created anything new and original. What they have done is taken existing jigsaw pieces that we used to know as techniques for doing other things. Actually, maybe we shouldn't call them jigsaw pieces. They've taken the Lego blocks and they've built an interesting new shape of Lego car. Right. Nothing new, but interesting way to put them together. Very interesting way of putting it together. And definitely clever. You, you, you sort of have to grudgingly grant them respect. <laughs> so the way this works is the first thing involved is research, research, research. So the first thing the Iranians did was find out as much as they could about their intended target so that they could craft as convincing a spear phishing email as they possibly could. Basically, figure out exactly what these people's technical competence is, exactly what services they use, and therefore exactly what kind of phishing email to send them that they're likely to believe and click on. Because they have to click the link. Right? All okay. of this depends on them clicking the link. So the first Lego brick involved here is spear phishing. Right? It's a common technique that is used against CEOs of corporations all over the place. So spear phishing is our first Lego blocks they're using. Another Lego block they're using is a technique that's been around for decades where you send someone an email and in that email you include a, an image which is hidden in some way. The traditional way is to make it a one pixel by one pixel pure white image. Yeah, you've talked about these before and I don't know that I ever really grokked how they would be okay. used in an attack. Okay, so what you do is you create yourself a web server somewhere on the internet. And on that web server, you host out these one pixel images and you give every image a unique URL. You just make up some pseudorandom glop.gif. And you only use that image in one email. And then oh. you watch your web server's access logs. Oh. And the moment someone requests that image, that email has been opened. Okay. So I, I think I, I understood pieces of that before, but how they use it here is is really interesting. It is. So the first thing to say is this technique has been used by spammers for decades to figure out which email addresses on their spam list are real and belong to actual human beings that read email and what is garbage. Well, and, oh, because they've been opened, right? Because they've been opened. And it's also used by by a lot of legitimate businesses like SurveyMonkey. How do SurveyMonkey deliver on their promise of analytics? Mm. Real-time analytics where they can tell you when people open your email. Well, this is how they put tracking images into them. So th th this is a very common technique. So these spear phishing emails contain a tracking image so the attackers know when to spring into action. Okay. The next thing included then is a fake link. 
to a rate, sorry, a real link to a fake website, as in the website being attacked. So if they want to steal your Office 365 credentials, it will be a link to a fake Office 365 login page. They then will know that you are up and about, and they could be a script. It doesn't necessarily have to be a human being, but you know, the server hosting the fake web page has been alerted to the fact that you're you're about to arrive here. You are presented with what looks like a Microsoft login page, say. It doesn't really matter which service it is. Microsoft Gmail, it'll work on anything, right? Um, so you present them with the fake page, and it has a fake username field, say. And so they enter the fake username field, and it, they hit submit. But instead of it going to Microsoft, remember, they're on a fake web page. It goes to the attacker. The attacker then enters that into the real portal.office.com, and they hit enter. And then they return back to the user a duplicate of what Microsoft returned to them. And the user then does the next thing Microsoft asked. Maybe the next thing Microsoft asked is, please enter your password. You repeat the process, and you echo back to the user whatever Microsoft returns. And then Microsoft say, please enter your authenticator code. Well, you see how this goes. Microsoft <laughs> asks the attacker, the attacker asks the user, the user answers the attacker, the attacker answers Microsoft, Microsoft get their answer, in you go. So, it's a proxy. So in this attack, they said that um, they saw people with SMS codes being caught by this. They didn't technically see people getting caught with authenticator codes, but there's no reason why it wouldn't work. Yeah, because the mechanism that the user uses to figure out the piece of information that Microsoft, sorry, that the victim website is asking for is irrelevant because what's happening right. is the user is typing it into a phishing site right. and that is immediately passed on to the real site. So the phishing site is acting as a proxy. And there's nothing about the way Apple lets you just auto paste in that it puts it in your copy buffer. That's still you typing. Right. Now, you see, something, something like a password manager is, is, not going to, is going to protect you here by the simple fact that the URL won't match the entry in one password or last pass. But it will fail to fill because the URL is wrong. You're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can Apple. totally override that. I mean, how many times have you if been? If you do, yes, absolutely. If, if you do. But, but I'm not saying it's stupid to do that. So there's a lot of times where I go, where I've told it to memorize the website. It said, hey, you want me to remember this? And I say, yes. And it turns out the site that it just memorized, the one password memorized is the create login web page. So now it doesn't recognize it on the real one. And so I have to go, oh, copy paste. I copy paste a or, lot out of one password. Well, nowadays with, with 1Password 7, it's very good about allowing you to add a new domain to an existing entry, which is great. And that should always pique your spidey sense. Oh, I didn't know it could do that. It can now. It didn't used to, but it can now, which is fantastic. So that would mean I can now have it stop yelling at me that I've used the yeah. same password three times when they're all my yes. Apple ID and they're all at Apple? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I have done this. So I've gone through all the Apple domains. They're all in one entry and one password. So it's basically it says one password, one password entry for Apple ID, mm -hmm. username, blah, password, blah, your website one, website two. Website three, website four, and just pop them all in there. Then one password is that's one login. It'll present the same information to you through the plugin when you get there in the browser, and it will stop whining that you're reusing your password. Nice. I like that. Well, that's a good tip. Um, I do yeah. want to say, though, that one of the places I always have to either paste it in or I have to type it by hand is at Office 365. Drives me bananas. Oh, just that's really. interesting because it works for me. Yeah, I've seen it. Steve um, had to do it too. So it's, huh. there's, it's like you can now, right click and hit paste, but you can't hit Command V, and yeah, and you it didn't autofill, and it's on pop up windows. It's a big mess. 
They make you less secure, huh. I think, by the way they force you to do that. Okay, it took me a while to get all of Microsoft's million and one URLs into my entry in one password. I will, I will certainly say that. My, my title of, of that entry is Microsoft Office Live 365 Outlook you know, OneDrive. Okay, whatever oh, I'm yeah. searching for, tell me that one. You know, they yeah, they have a lot of domains, and they fling you, they redirect you from the domain yeah. to the main with with gay abandon. It is spectacular <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. Okay. So, so the pieces they put together was uh, somebody who will click on a link, uh, putting mm-hmm. the the little uh, one pixel image in the email, so they know when you when you've viewed it, popping up that uh, the authentication questions, uh, your username, password, and your two factor authentication, and then Bob's your uncle. They're into your email account. Yeah. So basically, they're acting mm-hmm. as a human proxy, and that technique of sort of being a human proxy was used for years to bypass captures. You would basically get people to go to a website where you're offering them nudie pictures of something, some celebrity, and you would give them a screenshot of the capture that you're trying to get by. <laughs> and then the user trying to get the nudie pictures of whoever would, would solve the capture for you. And then you could then solve the capture back to the place you're trying to break into. And you being the electronic person who's trying to you do being it. a script in a that script case. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, we talked about this on uh, Daily Tech News Show just now, and I took the opportunity to bring up the lesson that you gave us last week on that in a lot of cases you might think, oh, I'll just look at the URL bar and, oh, it's got a lock on it. Therefore, I'm really at Gmail. Not necessarily. Yeah. So I gave him a little mini lecture and, and put a link in the uh, show notes to, uh, uh, to your tutorial on that. Excellent. Yes, so that is a good time to remind people when you look at the address bar, you're looking for the lock and that the domain is what you think it is. Both of those things should be true because otherwise you're not going to get what you need to get to. I think the way I put it was the lock tells you that where what it says is where you are. It doesn't say it's where you think you are. Yeah, that's that's a lovely summary. Yeah. Uh, You know, you are definitely at the wrong place. Oh, sugar. (laughs) Okay, so that then takes us to notable security updates. And this, again, is a shockingly long section, so we'll race through it quickly. Uh, Before Patch Tuesday, there was an out-of-band emergency patch for a zero-day Flash exploit that was being actively exploited in the wild, so we love those. And then there was Patch Tuesday, where we got critical updates for zero days from Microsoft and from Adobe. So again, Windows, Office, Acrobat, Flash, all your usual friends. Apple then had to go at basically updating everything. Like all of their OSs and all of their apps got security updates. Not really many feature updates this time. It really was a security update mostly. Um, Google released patches for the latest version of Android. So assuming you have a Google phone that's actually updatable, you should update it or wait until your vendor finally gets around to letting you have the updates. But anyway, they they have come out of Google and they are hopefully making their way to you shortly. Oh, uh, uh, Zoom. Up, on, on the Apple patches uh, on iOS, there's a really good reason to do the update. If if being secure wasn't the reason you were doing it, they mm-hmm. uh, they put the ability to flip the camera around inside FaceTime back on the front screen instead of having to go two screens deep to get to it. So there. That will make someone very happy. Well, that you was, and that was 12.1.1, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um. There is also anyone who uses the Zoom, um, I think a video conferencing app, mm-hmm. um, they had a fairly nasty bug in their desktop client, uh, which they have patched, but you need to make sure you update your desktop client if you're a Zoom user. 
Uh, Google have released a new version of Chrome. We don't usually mention every new version of Chrome because there's a lot of them. This being Chrome 71. Uh, this one fixes 43 security vulnerabilities, which is nice. But this one also adds even more teeth into Google's blocking of misleading ads. Mm. So those kind of ads that have buttons that pretend to do one thing but actually do something else or have invisible layers over things to make clicking on one thing sort of click jack you to something else. All of that kind of stuff gets ads blacklisted. And once your domain is blacklisted, then Chrome will block ads from that domain. Oh, nice. So, yeah, it's really good. And it, it's good to see Google cracking down on this stuff. You could argue they have a conflict of interest, but you know something? They're still doing the right thing. So, <laughs> yeah, go for yeah, it. Yes and yes. Yeah. Uh, security researchers then also released a details of a bug in older versions of the firmware for Vtex Storio Max or InnoTab Max tablet computers for kids. Hmm. They have different brand names in the UK and the rest of the world. Some sort of Sorcerer Stone versus Philosopher Stone thing going on there. Um, this was actually patched back in May because the security researchers responsibly disclosed to VTech who fixed the problem, and only now has the details been released. So plenty of time for people who have patched their kids' tablets. If you haven't been proactive about patching your kids' tablets, definitely do so because this lets attackers do things like turn on the microphone and, you know, those kind of scary things that you don't want happening to your kids. So, you know, for the number of VTech devices I've seen in real life versus the number of times they've come up in security bits. It seems like a high number since I've never seen a VTech tablet in real life, but it seems like they're, they're a subject, aren't they? Well, if you're going to buy a kid specific techie device, even since I was a kid, VTech were the company to get, like they had fake laptops for kids. Even when I was a kid, like they really have this market cornered and yeah, they keep showing up here. And and the things they've usually come up with was was something they've doing doing software wise, right? Uh, tracking kids usually was or privacy like stuff. Yeah, yeah. Usually it was privacy right. stuff. I this seems like a better attitude where they've managed to proactively fix a bug before anyone knew about it. Apart from the security research, you know, this okay. this seems better. This seems like an improvement. <laughs> Not as bad, by the way. The only the first place I knew about them is um, they came up with one of the earliest displays for visually impaired people, where you have a little Ooh. table, you set a piece of paper down, and it projects it up onto a big TV for you, and you can change the the zoom with a knob and change the contrast, that sort of thing. My mom had one. Oh gosh, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, maybe. Cool. So that's like the magnifier feature on your iPhone, but exactly. years ago, exactly, exactly. And not as portable. I remember the guy brought it into my mom's house to to let her try it out, and and she was in love with it. And my dad said, "You're leaving it here." And she's <laughs> like, "Well, you know, it's really expensive." He said, "You're leaving it here." Leaving it here. Like, he wasn't allowed to take it away. That was it. It helped her life. He got it for her. Wow. He was that, in love that, with that. Her. Is what technology is great for, right? That's why we love technology. Yeah. Plus, a great husband. That too. That too. <laughs> Um, also, just I know a lot of our listeners are WordPress users. WordPress 5.0.1 has come out. So all of you who took the big scary upgrade to WordPress 5, you now need to take the not at all scary update to 5.0.1 to fix seven nasty security vulnerabilities. And just to focus your mind, a botnet has been discovered that chewed its way through 20,000 vulnerable WordPress sites. So of, don't leave your WordPress unpatched. Which which flavor? 5.0 or 4.9? No, no, no. Just WordPress in general, because basically people just leave their WordPresses unpatched all over the internet. Okay. I haven't 
done WordPress yet. Or WordPress 5 yet, I'm chicken. I'm yeah, but as long as you, you're leaving your WordPress 4 to auto-update, you're fine. Okay. WordPress are really good about backporting. No, WordPress are really good about backporting security fixes. So assuming you just let your WordPress stay as up to date as it is on its current branch, you're fine. Well, you you just I'll move. I just I want you to hold my hand. (laughs) Tell me. I I jumped on on all on all three of my word four of my WordPress sites. Knock on wood. It was fine. I just, uh, when you log in, it offers you this plugin so you don't have to change your editor. I clicked, okay, do that. And then I clicked update and it just did it. Yeah. So Marianne in the, uh, in our Slack group at podfeed.com slash Slack suggested not going to the Gutenberg editor until you're fully aware of exactly what it does to you. And her description of what it does to you is unsettling of the way the editor works to say the least. And uh, so she suggested a specific plugin and apparently that's part of the install process is that plugin. But I I stuck the plugin on all my sites just in case it turned around and and installed without me noticing. You know, it won't go between major versions. So the auto update will keep your version four fully patched and safe, but it will never take you from four to five automatically. Okay, good. Just the WordPress are great. WordPress really have it nailed. Like we're, WordPress are, are an example of a service that was once a security disaster and have completely done a 180 and really take this stuff seriously and do it well. Good to know. And given they have power a third of the internet, that's good. <laughs> good thing, yeah. Okay, so notable news. Um, Apple have been forced to crack down on a new type of App Store fraud. Apps that basically social engineer you into putting your finger on the Touch ID sensor and approving extortionate in-app purchases. Now, this whole scheme is absolutely, utterly stupid because Apple were always going to find out that you were doing it. Apple were always going to refund the customers and Apple were always going to remove the apps from the App Store. So you were never going to profit from this and you were always going to get caught. And yet three different apps did three different variants of this. All three of them were stopped. All three of them were removed, and all three of them had the money taken back, and all customers were refunded. I don't get why people do such stupid things. <laughs> well, there there are an awful lot of uh, proofs on the internet that you can find of how stupid crooks are, right? True, true. I mean, and some of this was kind of vaguely clever. You, you sort of have to vaguely admire them for trying. Things like telling you that they're taking a heart rate sensor and, you know, leave your finger on the sensor. Okay. Oh, okay. Or dimming the screen all the way down so you can't really see the put the um, in-app purchase screen. I mean, you know, they were using various little tricks, but again, they were always going to get caught. It's a walled garden. You can't <laughs> escape. Where are you going to go? Oh, that's a good point. They're running around in a circle with Apple catching them inside, right? And Apple are the ones who do the money transfer. So, of course, you're not going to get the money and of, or you're oh, not going to get to keep oh, the money. Oh, that's why they're... Okay. So right, can you, you can't get their payment details. All you can get is a is them to tell Apple to pay you, and Apple are going to go, uh, "No, let's refund that transaction." You fraudulent person, you sod off. <laughs> that anyway. is a that is a vote for the walled garden, isn't it? It is because these things end better in a walled garden. Uh, Microsoft are also busy being policemen. They are working with law enforcement to crack down on tech support scams. You know, these people who phone up pretending to be from Microsoft yeah. and then trick you into thinking you're infected with nothing because there's something in your system error logs, because there's always something in your system error logs. <laughs> so uh, 16, 16 call centers were raided in this crackdown between Microsoft and law enforcement. So Sweet. good. Sweet. Yep. 
By the way, when I talked about my friend being hacked, I thought he was on a Mac at the time. He was on a Windows uh, box, not hacked, uh, socially engineered into Fished, giving them control. Yeah. yeah, it was on a Windows machine. Yeah. Um, not that it could happen to us, though, right? I mean... Absolutely, because people there are people ring up pretending to be from Apple these days too, because so many people have iOS devices that pretending to be from iCloud or whatever it can it can do the trick too. Yeah. Um security researchers have found attacks in the wild exploiting a vulnerability we talked about a few weeks ago called UP and proxy, which is a vulnerability in a bunch of routers, and combining it, so it's again a theme of the day, combining stuff, with the ethereal eternal blue and eternal red vulnerabilities released in those NSA leaks. The show notes say last year, I'm not entirely sure it wasn't even the year before that. Like mm. those NSA leaks are not recent. Nonetheless, there are still lots of unpatched systems out there. And a lot of those unpatched systems are not directly internet facing, which is where UP and proxy comes in. So they use UP and proxy to break through the router. And now they have access to the inside of your network. And now they can scan all those machines that think they're not available from the internet and take them over. So stay so patched and stay secure. Bingo. So if your router isn't patched, patch it. And if it can't be patched, bin, bin it. it. <laughs> I'm deadly serious. You cannot have the device that connects you to the internet be unsecurable. That is not a safe way to live online. You are a menace to the entire digital society <laughs> when you do that, because you are going to be hosting malware attacking others. Um, in a bizarre twist, um, a rivalry on YouTube has reminded us all that it's a silly, silly idea to expose your printers to the internet. Hmm. Because printer firmware is the Swiss cheese of firmware when it comes to security. It is notoriously terrible. There are a lot of printers that are full of insecure firmware that don't even have updates. And even those that do have updates never really get applied. So in the real world, just about every printer, just about everywhere is vulnerable. So if you connect it to the internet, it can be hacked. And in the past, no one really bothered. But that's kind of changing because as printers get more brains, they become more useful as pivot points where you can basically get into a printer and then make the printer attack something else you really want. You know, if the printer has enough RAM and CPU to run a teeny weeny tiny version of Linux, hey, hey, presto, you're away, you know? Hmm. Anyway, in this case, Some of them there was a rivalry. Some of the bigger well, printers, I mean, they had, corporate printers do. Yeah. Some of them save jobs and have history and stuff. So they actually, right. the printer itself can be useful, especially a multifunction device can be useful for espionage. Hmm. Be that um, corporate espionage or state espionage. Anyway, PewDiePie is a YouTuber, apparently the most famous YouTuber or the most viewed YouTuber or the YouTuber with the most subscribers, whatever the metric is for being the best. PewDiePie was it. By the way, it's, but then Pew, some, it's Pew, PewDiePie, not PewDiePie. Yeah, I'm going to call him PewDiePie. <laughs> that, and that is acceptable. <laughs> um, anyway, this this person was like the king of YouTube. And then some Bollywood star in India became the king of YouTube. And that was terrible, apparently. And so there was this whole big internet war to try to get PewDiePie back up to the top of the list. And someone decided, hey, there's all these printers out there that we know are vulnerable. Why don't I just print out a message on all these printers telling people to go follow PewDiePie on YouTube? <laughs> Okay. So he did. 
And really, the point of this story is to tell people, don't connect your printers to the internet. They're vulnerable. And while they, in this case they were used for stupidity, they could be used for evil. Don't let your printers be accessible on, to the world. Okay, so, oh, so your point is the fact that they were able to do this is proof that they can do this kind of thing. They can, they can control your printer, get into your network. Yeah, exactly. So in this case, they didn't use that ability for evil. They use it to do something daft and silly. But it just points out that those printers, if you put your printer on the internet, it can and will be taken over by someone for something. I don't think that my printer is vulnerable because my printer never prints anything. (laughs) (laughs) The other day I was trying to print to it and I was yelling at it and I go in there and I try to turn it on and off and I can't do it. I'm like, wait, why isn't the light on? I, I don't know where the power cord is. It's, it's, I've got so many cables behind my, uh, my, my (laughs) box of electronics that I cannot find it. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I guess it's very secure then if it's not like, you know, pull out the power lead is the ultimate security control. Yep. yep. Mine's secure. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Next up, Citrix caused a lot of confusion by forcing everyone who didn't have two factor authentication set up to regularly reset their passwords. Uh, every, not everyone. There were people of a conspiratorial mindset who simply assumed that this must mean that Citrix had been hacked. Those people were wrong. Citrix basically realized that there was an active campaign of password reuse attempts going on. So attackers were actively reusing passwords from other hacks, testing them on Citrix accounts. And therefore Citrix proactively and preemptively decided that if you don't have two-factor Roth, you really should be forced to reset your password regularly because otherwise it's only a matter of time until they have lots of customers hacked and they have a big problem on their hands. So actually, well, we should be applauding Citrix for doing the right thing. Instead, the internet decided that they must be evil and hacked. So, so this answers a question. I think I, I brought this up. If I didn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it for the first time. If it's the second okay. time, it bears repeating. Um, I use a service called ShareFile with my tax accountant. And okay. I got a, uh, a, a notice saying that... Um, we're just resetting everybody's password. I just looked it up. They're owned by Citrix. So my first, uh, so my first instinct was, uh, yeah, they've been hacked and they didn't tell anybody. I was wrong. But here's here's the fun part, Bart. I went in to reset my password, and I expected to be able to use my password to go in and reset to a new password. But they didn't do that. They shut everybody out. Where your only choice was reset my password. Okay. I hit the reset mm. my password. I got an email immediately. I did click the link because I had requested it, was expecting it from, from this company. Yeah. And uh, I, by the way, I didn't start from the email. I started from the website typing it in and got exactly. it to send me that. And uh, so I click that link and I go in and it says, okay, give us a new password. And it reset it and it let me do it. It never triggered my two-factor authentication I had set up on that website. Those freaking Oops. morons. Yeah. That's pretty oopsie. That's right? pretty darn oopsie. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I saw you post about that in the Slack, and I hadn't realized that was this same story. So, oops. Yeah. It's yeah. just like. Okay. So, idiots. good intentions. Yeah. Some flaws in the execution, I see. <laughs> Shoot me now. Indeed. Um, the UK Parliament's Digital Culture, Media, and Sport Committee who is not really the people you would imagine would be featured on this segment. In fact, what has sport got to do with digital? 
media okay culture anyway strange strange organization structure in the uk parliament anyway and that committee through some really bizarre twists and turns got their hands on a whole bunch of internal private facebook emails uh, and they don't reflect very well on Facebook, and they've decided to publish them. So there's lots of dirt to dig into if you so wish, and the link in the show notes takes you to a Naked Security article, which will link you straight to all the emails if you fancy reading them all. There's hundreds of them. Uh, but there's three really important takeaways. First off, Facebook keep telling us about how in 2014 they realized the error of their ways and they cut back that API that let you see friends of friends and that whole Cambridge Analytica thing. I mean, we realized in 2014 that we had this terrible problem. Turns out that they only sort of half realized, or rather they realized it only half gave a poop. Uh, they whitelisted apps they liked and just let them carry on regardless. Hmm. Without proper user consent or anything, they pretended to have closed the APIs but let their friends continue to do it anyway. So that what was, was nice. what was the definition of what they liked? Like they had buddies. It was seems to be arbitrary and case by case. One could almost say capricious. Huh. Not by rules, not by standards. Basically, yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down, sort of black ball, mm. white ball. I, yeah, I did hear. Um, who's the British guy on the Twit Network that's on often with Leo? He was describing how they got a hold of these emails, and it did sound the the British government it's bizarre it, yeah it's, it sounded real kind of dodgy catching a guy in his hotel room and sending in heavies to convince him to hand him over and stuff it didn't it didn't sound like due process did it well i think it was a member of parliament i think it was an mp who basically said yeah i happen to know we're about to indict you and he went hey have all my files and ran away i mean that's somewhat of a summary there but yeah the the details are in the naked security article actually linked in the show notes it is quite bizarre Okay. Anyway, yeah, it's certainly not the, the way you would expect this information to be released, but nonetheless, released it is. Um, the second important takeaway is that Facebook changed the permissions that their app uses on Android so that it could collect call and text data. Because, of course, Android allows you to ask for that permission. You just can't do that on iOS. So that's, that never happened on their iOS app. Um, but when they did it, they knew it would look creepy and evil. Uh, so they decided to figure out how they could do it in such a way that it would be as unobvious as possible so that it hopefully would go under the radar completely, which is charming of them. As opposed to that being a signal not to do it, they decided that was a signal to be sneaky. Uh, and then as we suspected, we talked about this story when it happened, but uh, Facebook briefly owned a VPN app, which was then yoinked unceremoniously from the Apple store. Uh, it was called Onavo. And at the time, we were like, yeah, Facebook are logging all this. This is a terrible idea. Well, we now know that Facebook were logging all this, and we know why. They were using it to figure out which apps are used a lot on people's phones and which apps are not used a lot. And that way, they could decide who was worth investing in slash buying out and who was not. So they were spying on people for corporate advantage. Charming. And there's other stuff in there, too, but they're the three, as far as I'm concerned, the three biggest points. Great. Uh, in a speech to the Brookings Institute, yes, yeah, so we're, we're now rounding a corner, right? So that's all the bad news. Now we get to do the good news. Oh, good. Uh, in a speech to the Brookings Institute the uh, in the US, I think it's in New York, Microsoft's president, Brad Smith, warned about the dangers of unregulated facial recognition technology and called for the governments around the world to step in and regulate it. Quote, 
we believe that the only way to protect against this race to the bottom is to build a floor of responsibility. I love that term. Yeah. So anyway, to build a floor of responsibility that supports healthy market competition. In other words, to stop us going all the way into the gutter, please provide some sort of lower limit grating, <laughs> some sort of grating above the gutter for us all to bounce off and that we'll all land there instead of going all the way down, which is kind yeah. of sort of what I've always said a regulation should be, right? Here is the floor. Do not go below this. Below this is beneath you. Yeah. So anyway, it was good to see. And the Brookings Institute is a fairly reputable think tank to go and have that speech too. So it was interesting to see. Well, and it was... Uh... Microsoft's uh, president that uh, the U.S. president yeah. that did this said that that's fantastic. Good on you, Microsoft. Yeah. Exactly. And again, I continue to say nice things about Microsoft because they continue the new Microsoft since Bomber left continues to make me ever happier. By the way, I renewed my Office 365 subscription, but I did it under duress and I was angry about it uh, because it said it was going to be a hundred bucks. And, you know, I don't actually use it very much at all. I was like, Oh, I don't mm-hmm. want to do it. But, you know, Steve uses it sometimes. And I do like Excel went back and forth, back and forth. And then I found out they were going to charge me a hundred bucks for renewal. Never pay a hundred dollars for renewal. You can go out and find it for 59 bucks. So, huh. um, I forget who it was. Somebody on Twitter pointed me at how it was on, for sale on Amazon for 59 or 40, 45 bucks, something like that. Save me a trunk load of money. Yeah. So for 59 bucks, it's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about WebAuthn, which is a new yeah. protocol that is developing browser support to effectively allow the web browser to use standardized APIs to bridge hardware security devices to websites because obviously the website needs the help of the browser to do that kind of you know facial recognition face id kind of stuff or yubikey tokens or fido tokens or rsa tokens basically that kind of hardware level stuff to bridge that to the internet you need the browser's cooperation and you have to have a standardized api to allow the websites to talk to the browser and the browser to talk to the operating system, which is actually going to go and do the NFC or do the face ID or whatever. So you have to standardize the communication between all the moving pieces and WebAuthn does that. And IE had support and Chrome, sorry, Edge, not IE. Microsoft had support and Google had support and Firefox had support. And the big holdout was Apple. And they're not quite done holding out, but they've taken the first step. So there are two versions of the Safari browser, the one we all use and another one that you can install simultaneously, actually, and you can use both together without one overwriting the other. It's called the Safari Technology Preview, and it's basically the beta version of Safari, and it's publicly available to anyone. Its icon is like the same Safari icon, but in purple instead of in blue. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and you can run them both together. So you can have them both in your dock and you can have them both open at the same time and they won't in any way interfere with each other. And they give you sort of an idea of what Apple's working on for the future. Have you so anyway, the Safari... T- Pardon? Have you played with it yet? Yeah, briefly to prove that it works and then I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> so I installed <laughs> it once, saw its icon, I went, yeah, okay, great, that works. That was easy. No, I don't care anymore. Um, but anyway, that now has support for WebAuthn. So that means that Apple are working on it and it should hopefully come to real Safari soon. So that is a good step forward for getting fewer passwords on the internet. Nice. Um, a group that includes Mozilla Foundation, the NYU Law, which is New York University's law department, and the University of Dundee have gotten together to create a so-called trust mark 
which they have. So this is basically a you know a certified organic sort of soil thing, right? That's a trust mark. And uh, they've called wait, it wait, trustable certified? technology. I don't know what that means. It's just a logo that has rules attached. Oh, okay. Right. So in Ireland, we have something called Guaranteed Irish. So if you see that logo, it's legally protected that if you use that logo without having actually been certified by the relevant authority, then you're breaking Irish like me trademark for Apple. Well. Like uh, exactly like uh, MFI. Exactly MFI. those. These okay. are basically, they're you're effectively using trademark to certify that you comply with a standard. Okay. So they're called service. They're called um, what's the fancy term for them? Uh, trust marks. Is okay. The fancy term for them. Anyway, those a group including those three significant institutions have gotten together to define the rules for a new trust mark. They're calling trustable technology mark. And it basically sets a bunch of rules for how IoT devices should behave in order to earn this trust mark. And that includes Ooh. stuff like timely security updates, a promise to support devices for at least so many years. All of those kind of, you know, you're, you're again, you're, um, your floor, really. <laughs> right, so, right. so far, this is new. So they've just launched this. So far, they've certified two companies. But if this develops legs, this could become really interesting. And even if this particular one doesn't take off, maybe this is enough to get the ball rolling on maybe an official U.S. government level program or something, mm. or probably more realistically, the European Union might take up that kind of thing. So either this thing itself could become really interesting or it could inspire similar things by more powerful organizations with the power to make it stick. But this is, I like this. This is an example of where we need to go. And if this isn't it, this is certainly on the road to it. So this makes me happy. If we don't make take our first step, we won't ever get there, right? Exactly. And on a similar vein, a first step has been taken in the U.S. Congress towards a U.S. variant of the GDPR. And it's it's very, it, right, I, I, I mean that very loosely. It is an attempt to solve the same problem. It does so in a very different way. And it is explicitly a lot less prescriptive and a lot less heavy-handed than the GDPR. Huh. Which means it has more of a chance of passing in the U.S. because GDPR could never make its way through U.S. Congress. Anyway, yeah. 15 senators have gotten together. They've written a bill. They've called it the Data Care Act. And it has been introduced into Congress. And uh, big picture wise, it imposes duties on companies is the approach they're taking. So basically, in exchange for holding data, you have duties. And mm. they are the duty of care, the duty of loyalty, and the duty of confidentiality. So you can't be careless with the data. You can't go and throw it away behind people's back. You have to be honest with people. You have to be loyal to the owners of the data. And uh, you have to keep it secret if you can. Or basically, you can't just throw it out unencrypted. So duty of care, duty of loyalty, duty of confidentiality. It sounds so noble, I think a, doesn't it? The way it's written? It is, and it's a good way of formulating it. It's, it's a good, human-friendly description of the problem to be solved, which means it has a chance of happening. Also, Data Care Act. That sounds a lot nicer than general data protection regulation, doesn't it? <laughs> well, but we're masters of that, of making up acronyms that basically are an acronym for save the children, and it's, right. you know, Patriot, de de and it's yeah. decrypt phones. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Patriot Act is a great example of that. It's like there's yeah. nothing patriotic about spying on everyone, but hey, if we backronym it to a nice word, it'll be grand, <laughs> don't you know? Backronym? I haven't heard that before. That's a great line. <gasps> Oh, it's a wonderful word. And astronomers are, are astronomers are the world masters of backronyms. Um, it's like, yeah, they make up 
it's basically they want to name their telescope something and then they find words and they very often end up using like the second and third letters to make the acronym fit. They <laughs> they don't start with a, with an acronym and go forward. They start with the end result and try to reverse engineer it. Anyway, I like it. acronyms are great fun. That takes us to suggested reading. Um, I'm not going to spend much time on these, but there is a lot I am suggesting today. Uh, PSA's tips and advice. The FTC in the US, the Federal Trade Commission, are warning of a scam that's doing the rounds this holiday season. Basically, phishing email targeted at grandparents pretending to be grandchildren in need of money. So this is a variant on the whole, I'm your friend and I'm on holiday and I just lost my wallet scam, but now it's grandparents, grandchildren. The logic, I guess, being... I wondered how Forbes got a hold of an email account. (laughs) (laughs) It's very technologically savvy, you know? He really is. Um... The logic, I guess, being that elderly people are more vulnerable to being tricked, which is a horrible thing. But hey, criminals are not good human beings. We know this. Um, An interesting article from uh, Motherboard's Voice magazine, how to tell if your partner is spying on your phone. It's basically some guides to help you find the sort of semi-legitimate spyware that is sort of masquerading as parental controls. But, you know, what is parental control if it's put on your phone by an abusive spouse? Well, then it's a problem. Yikes. So, you know, being able to tell, you know, a hammer is neither good nor evil. <laughs> and it sort of falls. Anyway, it's an interesting article from, from Vice Magazine, if that's something you're interested in figuring out. An interesting article from iMore, how to delete your Facebook information without deleting your Facebook account. And that actually is a very sensible thing to do, because one way to avoid being cyber squatted or to have your identity stolen is to go and create an account for yourself on all these platforms. But then to protect yourself from data theft, empty those accounts. So they mm. exist so no one else can steal them and then just take all the data out. So it's, it's an interesting idea, very good security practice if you're not actually going to use your account. And so I more have instructions. You know, uh, Mark, a, few, a few weeks ago, you gave us instructions on how to download all the data that Apple has on us. Mm-hmm. And boy, was that boring. I went through I it know. and I thought... I- I went through it thinking, okay, oh, it's got my iTunes purchases. Oh, this is going to be great. And it be it's like some long part number with a date and a time. And I think the device name. The, the most interesting thing I found was the names of all my devices. But I couldn't find the name of anything I'd bought, anything, how much I'd paid for it. It was it was awful. There was no, nothing juicy in there at all. Yeah, they're just SKUs, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's- yeah. Yours was boring too. This whole privacy aware company is no fun. <laughs> exactly. Let's go see. Remember, Google said that I was going to a bar every other day for 45 minutes at eight in the morning. Did I tell you that? I, no. I, I went and checked it out. I parked my car next to a liquor store. Oh. When I go for a run on the beach. We <laughs> see. Now, that's interesting because if you were in China and they were using that, uh, social responsibility score, you could end up accidentally blacklisted because of where you choose to park your car. Right. I was thinking about that, of the misunderstanding of that data, right? Yeah. I mean, that is why tracking data is dangerous because people make assumptions based on data that are often horse poop. Yeah. Very careful about that. Um, an interesting one from the Mac Observer, a different kind of security, how to use one Mac as a time machine destination for another. So if you have a little Mac Mini skied away under the stairs, maybe shove a big hard drive up its bottom and then have it just sitting on your network permanently on and have all of your other Macs back up time to it via time machine. Oh. It'd be very useful. Who wrote so, that? Uh, the Mac Observer. Oh, cool. So yeah, that caught my eye. 
Um, and finally, an interesting one from Intego. How to use console app for troubleshooting. And they go into great big detail about how seeing error messages is normal. Do not panic. Only go in there if you have a problem to be solved and then use searching to find the relevant messages. And if someone rings you up on the telephone and tells you to go look in here, never ever do because they're almost certainly scamming you. <laughs> and then they go say, but now that you know this, how do you use this tool to help you? So it's. I would like dark. to look at that because I go in there when I have problems and I'm, I always run away screaming because I can't figure out what any of it means. Dave Hamilton had an interesting suggestion that, that I kind of taken to heart uh, to some extent is go in when nothing's wrong. So you see yep. what it looks like. So sort of the opposite of what yep. they said, do go in when nothing's wrong, realize, oh, look, there's all this galop going around. Tell me everything in the world is wrong. So now I can. Look well, they're, they're not saying don't go in. They're saying don't panic if if there's nothing wrong. Okay. Don't panic if there's error messages in there. Is what they're saying. Right, so I may be paraphrasing okay. it poorly. Okay. Um, and definitely don't go in there if someone on the telephone tells you. That is that is definitely really good advice because right. they will find errors and they yeah, it's it's a scam. Anyway, you know it's a good article. It's interesting. And uh, notable breaches and privacy violations. Oh goody, is this a big section this week? Cora, oh, um, no. hundred million users. Oopsie daisies. Um, a subtle coding bug. Now this is this, there's irony here. A subtle coding bug in Instagram's GDPR data privacy portal <laughs> accidentally leaked users' passwords in plain text. Oh my goodness! Yeah. That's... Now they fixed the bug. They know who was affected. All affected users have been notified. But there's a deli- there's a the opposite of a delicious irony, a horrific irony to this one. <sighs> anyway, uh, there it is. Um, Google proactively found another bug in their Google Plus API uh, and fixed it. Uh, and it was basically the bug was was leaking out information that shouldn't be leaked out. There's absolutely zero evidence anyone but Google ever found it. It only existed for a few days. Um, so there's actually a silver lining to this. Google's proactive self at, attempts at self-exploiting are clearly working because they're finding these bugs themselves. So that's kind of a good thing in Google's processes. On the other hand, they've decided that this is an excuse to kill Google Plus even more quickly. Yeah. Uh, probably no harm. Now you've told everyone it's dying. Just get it over with. Right. Why why wait too long to to do it? Give people a couple months to find a new place to go go have fun. Yeah. It's still sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have three other stories in here that I didn't bother with the star next to. Samsung fixed a problem on their website that briefed that let hackers attack people's account data, but they found it fixed it. So that's kind of over. Um, and two jewelry brands in the US that I don't know how big or how small they are called Jared or Jard and K Jewelers basically had websites written by someone who didn't even pass CS101 because they made the most stupid and elementary coding mistakes resulting in their data being exposed. It's like those, staggeringly bad. Those are both pretty big uh, uh, oh. mall, mall jewelry stores around here. Oh, mm. that's unfortunate. Yeah, because they were super, super bad. Like the fact that their website were like such an inept security design. Even though they fixed this problem, that gives me zero confidence. Like if you can make a mistake this sophomoric, I don't trust you. Mm. Uh, and what technically speaking counts as good news, 12 states have filed litigation against a company who leaked data medical records. I think we talked about it at the time. It was last year the leak happened. Uh, so it's good to see 12 states get together for their attorneys general to go ahead and actually prosecute this company for leaking those medical records. So that's mm. good. 
In terms of other news, the only one I have a star next to in this section, there's lots of stuff here. Most of it is horribly depressing, which is why I'm just not, I'm just going to skate over it. I suppose um, everything else you've talked about that's been a real joy. Ain't there been a few good ones? Yeah, a couple. I worked really hard to find them. <laughs> anyway, just to be aware, it is now a thing that the black, the, 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 the darker corners of the internet are selling as a service, getting a blue tick on Instagram which the Mac Observer very cleverly coined as Insta-scam in their headline. It sort of made me chuckle. I want a blue tick. I don't know what it is, but I want one. Yeah, basically, it's like the blue tick on Twitter, right. verified. Verified. Yeah, so you basically, um, you, you basically pay someone to intentionally impersonate you so you have an excuse to apply for being verified because oh. you're being actively exploited. Ah, okay. It's, anyway, it's bizarre, but there we go. Opinion and analysis, some really interesting stuff in here, actually. Um, first off, a cautionary tale for nonprofits who use Facebook. You need to monitor your account. Um, why would have an article that is a case study in how this works? There was a charity, and they had been hacked months ago, but no one noticed, and the attackers didn't do anything to draw attention to themselves. They just lurked, and they waited for something in the news to happen that would cause this charity to have a reason to ask for donations. And then they pounced. They put out fake notices to all of these Facebook page, this charity's Facebook page's followers with a link to donate to a specific cause that was happening at that moment and was in the media. Mm. And those donations were, of course, not to the charity, but to the attackers. Mm. And by the time the charity realized what was going on, a lot of money had been given to the attackers and there was no way to get it back. You know, the they were able to close the barn door, the but website. the horse <laughs> Yeah, I, I hate to keep sounding like I'm the smartest person in the world, but I go, you know, if I want to donate to Red Cross, I don't click a link on a web page to get to it. I go and I tap redcross.com. Right, but if it was Red Cross's official Facebook page. Huh? Yeah, it's still it's inside Facebook. I wouldn't start there probably. Yeah, I mean, Red Cross is, you know, is a big charity, but if it was your local, your local society for protection of cruelty, the dogs or something. Yeah, maybe. You know, and you follow them on Facebook. And the thing is, they're legitimate charities. They're legitimately on Facebook posting legitimate things. So okay. their followers are actually following the real charity. The attackers are just waiting for an opportunity to do the, to, to put out one lie amidst a whole bunch of genuinely legitimate truth. It's a pretty effective technique. Yeah. So it's important to audit your logs. And if you get an email saying someone has just accessed your account, if you're a group where it's normal to have lots of people logging in, it can be too easy to ignore that. Uh, so if you're a bunch of people sharing a Facebook account, coordinate with each other. If an email comes in, check with each other. Was that you? Because right, if right. it wasn't, you could be in big trouble. Uh, Wired then have a, I mean, Wired are great for long form articles. The Wired Guide to Data Breaches. It's not depressing nor undepressing. It's just factual. What's going on? What does it mean? You know, how does it work? Basically, you hear the word. If you have friends or family who don't know what it means, or if you want to figure out a little bit more, here's how it works. It's, it's you know, it's a good article for people who want to know more. And the New York Times then had a really interesting study of... Um, what apps do with supposedly anonymous location tracking? And it's kind of scary. And um, the only silver lining I can find is that this is a huge problem on Android and only a minor problem on iOS. So 200 so, iOS apps versus thousands of Android apps. 
it's only most of the planet is it uh, at risk. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's interesting legwork by the New York Times and, you know, worth a read. And um, there's also a study from Dr. Go that's getting a lot of press because Dr. Go did an experiment and the experiment would seem to imply that even if you log out of Google and even if you enable private browsing mode, Google can still give you customized search results. So they must be tracking you somehow. Um. DuckDuckGo say they controlled for everything like location and stuff, but when, to be honest, reading their description of how they did their experiment, I'm not buying that. And I'm not the only one not buying that. Google basically went, no, your methodology was flawed, therefore your conclusions are flawed. And as you much as I'm you not... You didn't say in- what their conclusions were, though. I, I lost... Oh, no, no, I, I did. did. The conclusion is that Google track you even if you log out and even if you engage okay. private browsing mode, Google somehow magically managed to track you. It should be impossible. Okay. And Google's answer is, no, your methodology's wrong. You, your experiment isn't what you think it is. Therefore, your results don't mean what you think they mean. And while I'm not inclined to give Google the benefit of the doubt, in this case, I think Google Google's answer stacks up more with my understanding of reality than DuckDuckGo's does, unfortunately, because I so, really like DuckDuckGo. So for people who don't know, DuckDuckGo is a private browsing service. So they, they have a... Private mo- search engine. Search engine. Okay, sorry. Uh, so they have a motivation to convince you that Google is uh, is evil. They do. Also, I mean, they're also stating the blindly obvious. Google's business model relies on tracking you. Dr. Go's business model does not. So, I mean, you know, there is digital underpants gnomes, you know, that comes in here, follow the money and you're fine. Right. So, I mean, you know, I do like Dr. Go. And in this case, they tried to do something clever. They weren't clever enough. And I actually think Google are right. I think their experiment was flawed. And as a result, if your experiment is flawed, you Results. cannot make... Yeah, the results don't tell you anything. So um, unfortunately, I think there's no there there. But it was an interesting thing they tried, and I just just think they swung and missed, unfortunately. Propeller beanie, lots of really cool stuff here. I I don't want to go into any of this, but I just want to say to Naked Security, whoever you had in charge of writing your headlines for the last two weeks, you guys deserve a cookie. (laughs) Um, Faster fuzzing ferrets on 42 fresh, uh, find 42 fresh zero day flaws. <laughs> Bickenberg's cat puts another scratch in TLS. Uber nerdy stories. No reason to set your hair on fire. Definitely belong in the propeller beanie section, but I just want to give two thumbs up to, um, to Naked to Security. To the headline writers. <laughs> to the headline writers. It's just too fun. Uh, palette cleansers, I have two for you. Okay. Astronomy picture of the day simply rocks, and they do this thing every few times a year, uh, where they basically have like a map of the sky that shows all the interesting stuff that's going to be happening in the sky for half, you know, for a chunk of the year. So we have the winter astronomy highlights, is what's linked in the show notes. So it's basically a bunch of dates where cool stuff happens in the sky in a nice little picture. So they print it out, hang it on your wall, and then go see cool stuff. We saw a full five minute long ISS sighting a couple nights ago. Oh, they're so spectacular. Yeah. And it it was, it was, I haven't seen one this long. I've seen a lot of good ones, but this one was really like long enough. We got bored and walked away eventually, but this guy was walking and he looks up and he goes, what are you looking at? Oh, it's a spaceship. Is that the space, the space station? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I saw that the other day and I thought I was crazy. I didn't know what that was. And then I found out what it was. That's cool. Yeah, actually, it's really cool that a random passerby knew knew that they were looking at a space station. Yep, that, yep, that made me. That's kind of cool. Yeah, you live in a good neighborhood. 
And then the second thing I have as a palate cleanser is it's a long form article and it's really interesting and worth a read, but it is a long form article. So it's basically how to improve your moral reasoning in the digital age. It's it's philosophy. But hey, we kind of live in a digital age. So figuring out what counts as evil and not evil in a digital world is probably something we should do. So, yeah. Now, I have to be honest, I have skimmed the article, which told me that I need to sit down and read it in detail, but I haven't I haven't done the second part yet. All but right. Anyway. But we have it for our palate cleansers. Exactly. Well, you sure packed a lot in this week. I do want to give a quick shout out to Barry Falk, who said that he lives and breathes for security bits. He was so, he said he basically went squee when we got three in a row. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he might be your biggest fan, Bart. Yay! Yeah, they're fun to do. Actually, there is something to be said for going weekly because each one is shorter. On the other hand, then I have to spend every week doing them. So, yeah, swings and roundabouts. Right, swings right. and roundabouts. It's always good for us. I, yeah. Anyway, uh, we will... Ooh, actually, our goodness only knows when we'll talk again since the silly season is right upon us. Um, hopefully, all of the listeners are going to have a nice, safe, and enjoyable holiday season. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you about security stuff at some stage between now and 2019. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, until then, whenever it is, remember to stay patched, stay secure, and while you're visiting your relatives, maybe give them a security checkup. They might appreciate it. Good idea. Well, I promised you that was a long show without a lot of prepared content, but of course, all the heavy lifting was done by Bart, but that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions. I've got a dumb question. I've got one, but I'm not sure I answered it really well, so I'm not sure whether I can use it. Anyway, you can always contact me by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, anything you're looking for at podfeet.com, just write podfeet.com slash whatever it is you want. You're trying to remember how to get to Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. You want to join our Slack community, which is on fire and doing really, really great? Podfeet.com slash Slack. You want to join the live chat room? Podfeet.com slash chat. You want to find those Amazon affiliate links? Podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, but not until the 30th of December, there will not be a live show next week. Head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.